Hey, this is Pastor Bradley, and I want to welcome you to the Res Church podcast. Res Church is a place where people discover life through knowing and following Jesus. And so we hope that you will be blessed by this message. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. Romans 8, we're going to pick up right where we left off in verse 18. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 18. Is everybody there? All right. Paul writes and says, For I consider, or I reckon, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope, that the creation itself would be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved... Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us. How many of you are thankful for the Spirit's help? Helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Wow. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Lord, add your blessings to the reading and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name, everyone said, Amen. So there are two themes that I see, primary themes, in chapter 8 of the book of Romans. The first theme is, what is this new life according to or in step with the spirit that now dwells in us like? What's it like? What's it like to have the spirit of God living on the inside of you as a son and daughter of God? What's that like? Here's the second theme that I see. Why it matters that we have life according to and in step with the Spirit given our current reality. What's our current reality? Here's what Paul says in verse 18. He characterizes it as present sufferings. Present sufferings. Is that how you would characterize this life? It's not all bad, is it? We talked about that last week. The world is a beautiful and ugly place all at the same time. 
We experience beauty. We experience relationships. We experience community. We experience beauty in nature. And then at the same time, we experience the ugly. As, as beautiful as relationships and community can be, we all know what it's like for insecurities and deception and all those kinds of things to work their way into re, to relationships. And before you know it, what was once a source of joy is now a source of pain. The world is a beautiful and ugly place. And the question is, and this is what we're going to wrestle with today, and it's really, really big, and you're going to have to stay with me. We're going to all have to stay with Paul and stay in step with the Spirit to get our minds around this because here's the question. Why are things the way they are? How many of you would agree, by a show of hands, Christian or not, church person or not, that things in this life, our experience in this life, is not as it should be? I mean, would you agree with that? No one would deny that, right? Something's wrong. Evil, violence, sickness, suffering. What's wrong? Why is it this way? We've all kind of thought about that question, and perhaps some of you have wrestled with that deeply. Others of you have maybe thought about it and gone, well, I'm just not even sure what the answer is, so I'm not going to think about it. But the Bible has something to say. Paul has something to say here in Romans Chapter 8, why are things the way they are? Look at verse 19 again. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. That's a little weird, isn't it? Creation waiting and longing. Paul is speaking anthropomorphically. That is not a word I use every day. And it just simply means, it's a, it's, a, it's a literary term that just means Paul is ascribing human characteristics to creation, the planet, birds, animals, the oceans, the whole universe. He's using human characteristics, describing creation as longing and groaning to make a point. Why is creation, anthropomorphically, groaning why is it longing verse 20 for the creation has been subjected to futility what does that mean right what's that word mean if i were to ask you what is the dominant question throughout the human story we got lots of questions don't we but if you had to pick one that you would say is the dominant question throughout the human story i bet we would all agree it's this why are we here? What is the purpose of our existence? And I stopped and thought about that this week, and I thought, why is that the question? Why do we ask that? Why are we so uncertain about the purpose for our existence? What is this? Do you have any questions about why this exists? You don't, do you? Because you have seen a hammer like this, Drive a nail into a piece of wood. When something functions the way that it's designed to function, when it does what it's designed to do, all the questions about the purpose for its existence are answered, right? So why are we so unsure about why we exist? Could it be that there is, has been a loss 
of a sense or an awareness of why we exist, the purpose for our existence. Existence without purpose is futility. That word means useless, right? When we exist, something exists and it has no purpose, its existence is futile. And here's what we know. When something ceases to exist outside of its original design or purpose, it tends to become destructive, doesn't it? If I take this hammer and I try to navigate the apps on my iPad with it, it becomes destructive, right? Why does evil exist? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there sorrow? Why is there sickness? Why are there famines? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there tsunamis? Why are there tornadoes? Why do volcanoes erupt? It's because creation has been subjected to futility. It has lost its sense of purpose, its original design, its original intent. And we can look all around us and see this. Another word we could use is entropy. It means a gradual decline into disorder. We see it all around us, and we can trace it all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 3 on the screen, verse 17. And to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. So when Paul says in verse 20 that creation has been subjected to futility, that's what he's talking about. When Adam and Eve sinned, God judicially cursed them and all of humanity that followed after. And as a consequence of that curse, creation was subjected to futility. Creation was not judged but it was affected. You understand? Adam and Eve were judged, humanity was judged, and as a consequence, creation was subjected to futility. Okay? Now, we know that not only creation was subjected to futility, but so were we. Right? We know that sickness, death, sorrow, tragedy, betrayal, that all these things are not as they should be. It's why we spend so much time, energy, and effort trying to prevent them. Think of the trillions of dollars spent all the time on health care. Look at the recent rise in health consciousness in terms of exercise and diet. Why do we do all of that? It's because we know this is not right. Something's wrong. How many of you ever heard of this guy, Deepak Chopra? Okay. He is a, I think he's Indian. Um, Indian born, but he's an American citizen. He's a pretty prolific author, public speaker, and an alternative medicine advocate. And here's what he believes. He believes that a person can actually attain a level of consciousness, a state of mind where they actually never get sick, never feel pain, 
and they can really even get to the point where they can slow the aging process down and even reverse it. He believes it's possible for a human being to will themselves into living forever. Now he says that he believes he is going to live well past 100, but apparently he believes at some point he's going to die. So whatever this state of consciousness is that you've got to have to live forever, he hasn't got there. It never ceases to amaze me how smart, educated people can believe nonsense like that. I just don't get it. It takes five minutes of watching the news to see that we are not progressing beyond futility and entropy. As enlightened as we are, as educated as we are, as much information is available, as many books that have been written, as much trial and error that has taken place throughout the course of human history, we are not progressing beyond the futility and the destruction that rises from it. Violence, evil, sickness, all that stuff is on the rise. And Paul says, it's all rooted in the futility that came as the result of sin. We got to be careful here, folks. We got to be careful when we weigh the problem of evil, when we look at our world and we go, things are just not right, and we endeavor to offer an explanation for that. We got to be careful that we don't end up as Christians with an incoherent theology. No atheist is going to deny that things aren't right. They're not going to deny that things are not as they should be. But if you stop and think about it, it really doesn't make sense because if you believe that everything came from nothing and therefore has no definite purpose or design, what business do you have scrutinizing the quality of existence? It just is what it is, right? But as Christians, we got to be careful that we don't end up in the same kind of incoherency because when you try to insert, how many of you believe that God is all-knowing? How many of you believe that He's all-powerful? How many of you believe that He's sovereign? Most Christians would affirm those things about God that are revealed in Scripture. But we got to be careful that we don't end up in an, with an incoherent theology because when Christians start to wrestle with the problem of evil, the suffering in this world, the present sufferings as Paul characterizes them, a lot of times we end up in one or two wrong places. A lot of times we'll end up at the place where we say, okay, God is not in control really, and that's why evil and suffering and pain still exist. Or we'll end up with God is in control, God is sovereign, but he must not be good. Because if he has the power to do away with all this madness and he doesn't, he must not be good. I hear preachers say this all the time. God is not in control. Because if he was in control, there'd be no more rape. There'd be no more sex trafficking. There'd be no more wars. There'd be no more natural disasters. God's not in control because I couldn't worship a God that had the power to stop all that stuff and chooses not to. I hear that all the time being preached in Christian churches. And you know how I want to respond to that? Really? Play that tape out. 
you really want to entrust your life to a God that doesn't have that kind of power? And are you who are immoral going to presume to make moral judgments on the character of an all-powerful, all-knowing God? Really? I'm not saying, folks, listen, I'm not saying that it's easy to reconcile the problem of evil in our world, suffering in our world, with a sovereign, good God who's in control and willing it all for His purpose. I'm not saying that's an easy reconciliation to make. In fact, I would even say it is impossible to make that reconciliation in our minds with our own strength. But that is why, that is why, that is why we must be so incredibly grateful and dependent upon this miraculous partnership between the Holy Spirit in us and the Word of God in front of us. Because Paul answers the question. You may not like the answer, but the answer is here. Look at verse 20 again. For the creation was subjected. Everybody say subjected. Subjected to futility, from which all the problems are arising. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Everybody say hope. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is Paul saying? I'm going to try to summarize it. Here's the first thing he's saying. The futility in this life from which everything ugly arises is not something that Mother Nature determined. Creation was not subjected willingly. You see that? Mother Nature didn't do this. The futility in this life is the result of God's sovereign, righteous response to sin. The reason things are the way they are, stay with me, is because God willed it, ultimately. God willed it. What? Finish the sentence. God subjected creation to futility in hope. Everybody say hope. What hope? That creation would one day be set free from its bondage to, to decay and to corruption. The curse was not rendered void of hope. Look at Genesis 3 again, verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field on your belly shall you go and dust shall you eat all the days of your life and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring you shall bruise your he shall bruise your head you shall bruise his heel so right alongside the curse was hope literally in Romans 8 it reads this way in the Greek upon the basis of hope creation was subjected to futility Upon the basis of hope, 
The curse was rendered. The hope that one day God himself would enter his cursed creation and redeem it. So the first answer to the character of God, when you consider a sovereign, good, all-knowing, all-powerful God, who if he is those things, he has to be in control. You can't have it both ways. So if he is those things and he is in control, is he good? Yes, he's good because, first answer, he did not subject his creation to those things void of hope. He actually did it on the basis of hope. But we got another question, don't we? God, why this way? I mean, really? Why you got to do it this way? When you consider all that we've studied in Romans, there's really only one conclusion we can come to. is why God did it this way. I wrote this down. In order that His righteousness might be shown in the punishment of sin, in order that His righteousness might be shown, God willed the sentence upon man that carried with it consequences that extended throughout the whole of creation. And it is those consequences and the sentence rendered upon man that gives rise to all of the problems and the pain we experience in this life. But that curse was rendered upon the basis of hope. So this is what helps us understand the tension we're in right now. Here's the tension. A life of present sufferings with a hope of future glory. That's the space we're in right now, isn't it? If you're a believer, if you trust God, if you trust Christ, and even if you have trouble reconciling that God is willing, directing, He is overseeing and ruling over all of the pain and sorrow in this life, we should be able to look to the cross of Christ where His Son was murdered to pay for our justification. For God so loved the world, He gave His Son. The very creation He subjected to futility, He loved enough to send His Son to die for it. On that basis, I can go, God, I don't understand everything, but I trust You. I trust You. This is the tension we're in. Present sufferings, future glory. How in the world do I navigate that? Because yes, the world's not all bad. My life's not all bad. There is some beauty in it. But there's not enough to compensate for the ugly, is there? Right? Verse 22. For the creation... For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Again, this is Paul talking poetically about creation. He uses a metaphor like that of the pain of childbirth. It's kind of like creation's groaning, but it's, it's poetic, right? But then look at verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. 
For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Notice the connection between groaning and hope. Creation groaning is poetic. Our groaning is real. Can we say amen? Our groaning is real. Our longing is real. Our longing for things, even if you're not a Christian, your longing for things to be right is real. But notice the connection between groaning and hope. Our groaning, here's the first thing, our groaning is not in a vacuum of certainty. Our groaning is not in a vacuum of certainty. We're not just groaning with no hope. We groan, listen, because by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit in us, we have future faith. We have certainty about our hope. We're not just shooting in the dark. We're not aiming at nothing. We're not, we haven't just brainwashed ourselves into anything. If you're a believer and you are indwelt by the Spirit, you know your future hope is secure. It is certain. You may not be able to explain a lot of stuff in life, but you know that one day everything that's not right, God's going to make right. Because the Holy Spirit is bearing that testimony on the inside of you. Amen? So our hope is not in a vacuum of certainty. The Holy Spirit is guarding and protecting and cultivating that hope. I said that last week, right? That's one of the roles or one of the things the Holy Spirit does on the inside of us is He guards, cultivates and guards our eternal hope. How does He do that? I'm just digging how specific the Bible gets lately. Because some of these things that have been so intangible for me are starting to become more tangible. How does he guard my hope? How does he do that? Here's the second thing from those few verses. Our hope is not in a vacuum of experience. Our eternal hope, right, that we're waiting for, is not a reality that we are only going to experience in eternity. Let me illustrate. How many of you have ever just had a time in God's presence that was so sweet, you felt so whole, so satisfied, It's like His love and His Spirit just washed over you. How many of you ever had an experience like that? Maybe it was in personal prayer, time in the Word. Maybe it was in a church service like this one. Maybe it was both, right? But you've had times like that, right? And then how many of you have ever had times where you fell asleep during prayer? (laughs) I stayed with my grandparents one summer. And my grandfather, man, some of you knew him. I don't know if I've ever met somebody that loved Jesus more. That was so, you couldn't talk to him for five minutes. Where he just wouldn't start to gush, gush. With his love for the Lord. His hope, his faith. Tears would come to his eyes at Zaxby's over chicken fingers, he started talking about the Lord. Just love Jesus. And I stayed with him one summer, 
uh, I was doing an internship at a church near where he lived, and I remember sometimes I would come in at night, and I'd find him asleep on the couch with his Bible in his lap. And I remember this one time I walked in, and when I opened the door, he woke up, and he always called me son. He said, son, come over here, let's have prayer. So I went, and I sat down beside him on the couch, and he was leaned back, his Bible in his lap. I sat down beside him, and he leaned up, like he was going to bow his head to pray, and as he leaned up, he did this. Just like that. So I'm sitting there going, what do I do? Do I leave him here? Do I? So I kind of did one of these. <clears throat> and he went, Heavenly Father, we thank you. <laughs> Just like that. We've all had experiences like that. What's the connection? Paul says, we who have the first fruits of the Spirit long for our adoption, the redemption of our bodies. That's the explanation of our adoption. Okay, Our adoption is fully realized when our bodies are redeemed. Okay, Now we have the first fruits. Our Christian experience in this life is a lot like the appetizer before the main course. We've tasted that the Lord is good, haven't we? We've tasted that in His presence is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. We've tasted that He does provide peace that passes all understanding. When we can't answer the questions, somehow there's peace there. Right? We've tasted all of that. We've got the first fruits. Everybody say first fruits. First fruits of the Spirit. While we long for the redemption of our bodies. These bodies in which our renewed spirits live, they lack the capacity to enjoy fully and forever what we now taste the first fruits of. But one day, one day, we will enjoy Him forever and we will be everlastingly happy and satisfied in His presence. And you can imagine that, can't you? You can fathom that. You've got something in your mind and your heart if the Spirit dwells in you that I know kind of what that's like. I taste it now. When I open His Word and it washes me, when I lift my hands and I sing, praise is yours, I taste it. And even in the present suffering, while we wait for the future glory, our certainty is not our hope is not in a vacuum of experience we've tasted and we've seen the lord is good the lord is good but we need some help don't we if god is indeed ruling over the pain and the sorrow in this life if he is good and we've tasted that goodness and he's promised us a future hope that we taste now and we're groaning for it we're longing for it and in some mysterious way creation is too between the present sufferings and the first fruits and the realization of the glory that is coming we need some help don't we verse 26 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's that word groan again. Groan. When I hear groan, I think of children taking the long car ride to Grandma's house. And from the back seat comes the dreaded question, are we there yet? It's not an apples to apples comparison, but it is similar. You ever found yourself going, why God? Why? God, how? God, when? God, I don't understand. God, I can't see. I can't make sense of this. It hurts. Here's the incredible promise that Paul has made to us here. Is that not one of those groans is wasted. I think the groaning that Paul mentions here in verse 26. That's our groaning. The intercession is the Spirit's. And here's what Paul says happens. Is that in our groans, the Spirit intercedes. That word means plead. So he's making pleas. He comes to our help, not to our rescue. It's not like he comes in and takes over in our weakness. He comes and helps us in our weakness. And here's how he does it. He helps us because when we groan, he couples that he partners that with intercession with pleas and Paul says those pleas that intercession that he partners with our groans is in direct line with the will of God and God who searches hearts he knows your heart he sees on the inside of you and he knows the mind of the spirit he knows that the spirit he and the spirit are in perfect unity And he knows your groans and he sees your heart. And so when the groan comes up out of you, why God? I don't understand God. I can't see God. This hurts God. What are you doing, God? The Spirit weaves, he partners, he couples intercession with that in direct line with God's will. And you know what God hears? Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Give me today my daily bread. That's what he hears. Listen. Not one groan that you've made as a child of God is wasted. God's not turned off by it. He doesn't tune it out. He's not impatient with it. In fact, what he did was he put his spirit in you. So that even your groans would become intercession that directly lines up with his will. Do you see that? Do you you understand that? Because some of you are groaning right now. And you can't see the end. You're like, we know verse 28 is coming, right? All things work together for good. Those who love God and are called according to his purpose. So you know that. We know the end. 
We know ultimately what to pray for. But in the moment by moment crises, we know we are, we are in a state that's not right yet. But we know the right is coming. We know the glory is coming. But in between, on the journey to that end, we don't know what to pray. And sometimes all we can muster is a groan that sounds like, Why God? What God? And Paul even mentions that sometimes it's too deep for words. Sometimes all you can get out is... <sighs> kind of thrown in God's direction. Here's what the Bible's telling us. Here's what God is telling us through the apostle. Not one of those is wasted. Because by the Spirit, your groans become your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now give me today what I need. That's really what give us this day our daily bread means. Give me today what I need to remain in hope to that end. Paul groaned. He wrote about it. He had what he called a thorn in the flesh. And for those whose theology tells them that God doesn't want anybody sick, God doesn't want anybody suffering, God doesn't ultimately, that if, if, if you're not healed, whole, and happy, that something's wrong with your faith. 2 Corinthians 12 blows that foolishness right out of the water. Because Paul had a thorn in the flesh and he begged God to take it away. He begged God to take it away. And you know what God said? No. No. Paul groaned and God said no. But look what God did say. 2 Corinthians 12 verse 9. But God said to me, My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. And so here's the conclusion Paul came to. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses. Paul's like, yeah, I'm weak. I don't know. I don't know how this is all going to work together for good. I don't know. I know the end. I know the glory's coming. I'm not sure how this fits in it right now. But I'm going to boast in that weakness because the power of Christ will rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content. With weakness, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. That about covers it, doesn't it? He's not a masochist. He's not saying, I take pleasure in pain. I'm content in it, though. Why? For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. When I'm weak, then I'm strong. I'm so thankful 
that my Bible tells me that my God is sovereign. He's in control. He has power. He has purpose. He has a will. And that will ultimately, verse 28 of Romans 8, let's read it together. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. Wow. Is that verse coming alive a little bit more? So your joys and your sorrows, my joys, my sorrows, my defeats and my victories, my losses and my triumphs, they're all working together for good according to His purpose. And sometimes when it hurts and I struggle to see the goodness of God in it, I groan. I cry. But He doesn't turn a deaf ear to me because His Spirit is interceding for me. So that when I cry, when I'm weak and that weakness comes to bear, the song of the church, the song of his people, is your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now give me what I need today to remain in hope, to remain in joy, and to hold on for glory. Stand with me. As we sing, you're going to be served the elements of communion, holy communion. Communion is for believers. If you are not a believer, we welcome you to, as the Spirit leads you and prompts you, profess your faith in Christ and come to His table. Or you may let the elements pass if you're not there. But we're going to come to the table and we're going to remember that this hope that is secured for us in the Holy Spirit that is our deposit and guarantee, that work was finished at the cross of Calvary. We're going to remember that God is good and that the curse was rendered on the basis of hope. Can we say hope together? So hold the elements until all have been served and let's worship as we prepare to come to the Lord's table. We hope that the Lord has blessed you through today's message, and we would love to hear from you. Tell us how God is working in your life and how we can pray for you. You can also help us reach others by investing at resfaith.com give. Thanks again for joining us.